should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, Love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday, March 23rd. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center, when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. So, last week, I talked about South Dakota and how South Dakota had become the first state in 2017 to pass an anti-LGBTQ bill. This week, I'd like to turn our attention to Texas. Something has happened in Texas. The Texas Senate has approved a bill called SB6, which discriminates against the transgender community, and we'll tell you how. Our guest today is Lou Weaver, who's with Equality Texas. Lou, welcome to the Michelle Miao Show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, SB6. What is SB6? SB6 is a proposed bill that uh, targets transgender folks, saying that uh, basically in the state of Texas, we have to use the bathroom that coincides with our birth certificate, not with our gender identity. Also, SB6 will roll back any non-discrimination ordinances that you, uh, local municipalities have. For example, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, El Paso, and Austin all have they all have non-discrimination ordinances that protect based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And that just answered my uh, my next question, pretty much. And you know, kind of what were the rights of transgender um, for, for bathroom access, facilities access, prior to, to this bill being introduced and passed by the te- Texas Senate? It sounds like it, it, it varied uh, by city. Um, but for the most part, you know, what are your thoughts as far as Texas state? What are the next steps? Is that what you asked me? I'm sorry. No, my, my question was really about, you know, the, the policies regarding access and the transgender community prior to the bill. And I think you answered it by uh, discussing that it varied city by city. Some cities had uh, non-discrimination ordinances. And then now with this bill advancing, what it would basically do is undermine that progress. That is correct. It, it could take all of that progress away. There's, you know, transgender folks have been using bathrooms that coincide with their gender identity for a very long time. <laughs> um, so they're really looking for a solution in search of a problem. So the Texas Senate approved the bill. And for us people out there in the world who, who don't really fully understand how this all works, um, what does that actually mean? Does it mean that this bill is now law? Uh, what happens next to this bill? So it, the Senate approved it and voted out of the Senate chamber. It now goes to the House side of the Capitol and the House will have to have a hearing, they will debate it, they will do all of their things on their timeline uh, before it becomes bill. Uh, it, it will not go into law 
unless the House approves it exactly as the Senate has approved it. So depending on if any amendments are ha- uh, added that could go back to the Senate side, there's a lot of different things that would have to come into play before this bill becomes law. There were lots of pleas, uh, definitely what sounded like a lot of support from the community, and it varied from other politicians to community people who came out uh, to decry this bill. And even with that being said, it's still the Senate did approve it. What are your thoughts on what the House might do to it? Uh, we're definitely talking to the folks that um, are state representatives in the House uh, saying why this is important, why we need it to not pass, why it matters to the transgender community that this is not some arbitrary bill that is out there. It actually has a real consequences for transgender students um, and for transgender folks, too, because not only are schools impacted, but public buildings. And so we are still doing our due diligence about contacting these folks and letting them know how this affects Texans. Uh, we do hope that um, the, House is, um, the House listens to us. What do you think, you know, motivated this bill? I wrote this question. I mean, a lot of us in the LGBTQ community, we know, you know, what motivates these types of hateful bills. Um, One might argue that it all falls in line with giving those in the religious community uh, freedom and or the liberty to 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 not uh, to to reject service based off of moral values and things like that. Some of that might influence a bill like this, but particularly in in Texas, um, I think, to me, it's a bunch of Republican bullies, but <laughs> you can tell us otherwise. Um, well, I would hate to um, paint all Republicans as um, bullies. somebody who does yeah. not, yeah, as a bully, um, but I definitely, we do see certain things um, from certain communities. I think that um, right now that we are suffering from the backlash of so many gains that the gay and lesbian community has has um, made, and so they're looking. Some folks um, are looking for the next target, and the transgender community is an easy community to target. We're very vulnerable. We're very marginalized. Uh, this is exactly the same type of rhetoric we've heard before, um, and it's not really about bathrooms. It's about access to public spaces. Um, it's about how can I, as a transgender man, navigate the world, and and so you know we heard this in the '60s about restricting access for to, to restrooms based on the color of skin. So now we're, we're, you know, it's the same rhetoric we've heard before that we're hearing now. Um, it's, it's a way to, as you say, uh, mobilize the religious base, um, those that believe that their religion tells them one thing, to get involved and to get active and to give money um, to, by demonizing somebody. It's a very complicated situation that we're living. Uh, it's not just in Texas, but a lot of the South. Uh, North Carolina is still dealing with this. Uh, so we have to be mindful about the, the, the narrative that is out there around transgender folks uh, and, and how do we rewrite that narrative right now. Right, right. Um, I mentioned this the other day, actually, on, on a Facebook post on my social media, but you know, once the president, the current president, rescinded an executive order by former President uh, Obama on federal prote- protections for transgender youth, it appears that there is an actual rise in homophobic and transphobic incidents and attitudes. Do you feel or do you think that, you know, anti-LGBT advocates are taking advantage of, of you know, what the, the president had set at, in terms of kind of following um, 
where he's going in you know in his footsteps or in my opinion you know whatever the president is doing is is a, a major uh, nationwide distraction allowing for states like Texas South Dakota to pass these anti LGBTQ bills what are your thoughts yeah I agree with you I think that when we see um, people uh, that it's a top-down kind of mentality and when you see elected officials that are saying certain things it empowers uh, public citizens to say certain things as well. I, I do think that ever since um, uh, the election, we have seen a lot more homophobic and transphobic statements and actions and um, anti-Semitic statements as well. And I, it feels like, in some instances, we're taking a step backwards. Um, so we just we need to be mindful of everything that's being said and everything that's going around. And when an executive order is sign removing the the guidance that the DOJ and DOE the letter that was submitted for uh, last May 13th that's a big deal to folks because it says that our elected officials those that are in charge of taking care of all people in the United States that they don't see us they don't recognize us us being the transgender community as real people and that was for our transgender students who were often bullied uh, and under attack in certain places and it's telling these students that they are not as valued as their peers are. And so it leads to bullying from other places as well. And following in that line of discussion and talking about safety and, and you know, uh, this rise of transphobic and homophobic attitudes in the country in general, you know, is Texas, which is generally a red state, is it safe for LGBTQ people? I mean, particularly uh, transgender Texans. You know, that's a complicated question. I live in Houston. I'm a trans man. I have a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. Is it safe for me? Sure. My world's a little bit differently than those of my transgender uh, women of color sisters, my non-binary friends. So it's, it's a complicated thing to say whether or not it's safe. I would not say that it's not safe here in Texas, but that's not necessarily the world I live in. My African-American and Latinx sisters and siblings are walking a very different path than I am, um, especially if they don't have documents that line up. I'm privileged. All of my documents line up. Um, if they don't have access to being able to get a job. And, and the, the rhetoric that we are continuing to hear right now mm-hmm. is so nasty and so painful that sometimes even just having to sit through listening to the things that, whether it's our elected officials or community members saying during hearings and leading up to the hearings, that's incredibly painful for a lot of folks to listen to. So not just talking about physical safety, but our mental and emotional well-being. It's a a difficult time to be a transgender Texan, but also I would say it's a difficult time sometimes to be a transgender person who lives in the United States. And I just want to it's much different for our transgender women of color right now in the United States. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, and actually, in a previous show, we focused on that. And and I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned that. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for that. And the, the point is, you know, for anybody tuning in and listening, uh, you know, I, I feel like we really need to be focused here. And what's happening on a national level, in my opinion, is, is, is somewhat of a d- distraction. But when bills like this pass, it is the most marginalized, vulnerable, um, those who 
are underprivileged who are affected the most, and, and they continue to be even without these bills. So thank you for saying that. What's next for LG, the LGBTQ community, particularly trans Texans? Um, and what do we do now? It, it sounds like you mentioned that in the beginning as far as focusing on ensuring that the House votes otherwise. Right. We have to do a lot of education, a lot of relationship building. I talk to, as the transgender programs coordinator for Equality Texas, my job is to do a lot of education, but also to find trans folks and parents and friends and, and family members of transgender folks. Um, by transgender, I also mean uh, gender fluid, uh, non-conforming and non-binary folks, to um, the, those that are ready, willing and able to share their stories um, and help them and help elevate those stories, because we do have to reshape the narrative of who transgender people are. A lot of people have this thought that we're predators and, and, and we're other than, but transgender folks are the same as everybody else, and here in Texas, we have the same strong Texas values. And so I, I counsel everybody to think about what they're ready, willing, and able to do, but then to start relationship building. And that's everywhere from your school board on up. School board, city council, mayors, elected officials, in any way, shape, or form are local law enforcement officials, um, healthcare providers. Because the more that people know out transgender folks and can put a face to who a transgender person is, that is going to reshape the narrative of who transgender people are. And it's really hard to be so hateful to somebody that you know and care about. And so that's kind of where we're going. It's a long-term strategy. And in the meantime, we have to figure out how we can get some wins and make sure that we keep the transgender community safe here in Texas. Lou, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on the Michelle Miao Show. Uh, thank you for all you do. And uh, we're here in California, obviously supportive of Equality Texas. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. That's Lou Weaver. He's with Equality Texas. You know what we need to do. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation here on the Michelle Miao Show. Many nonprofits rely on events to raise money, create space for community gathering, and offer opportunities to network. But how many hours in a day do community leaders have when they're busy changing the world? Imagine your next event, gala, festival, or celebration professionally executed with creative ideas and ideals to match your community service. IDK is the community's trusted event production company. Visit idkevents.com for all your event production needs. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. 
Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Today is March 23rd. It's a beautiful Thursday here in San Francisco, but I'd say cloudy all over the country just because um, that's kind of the genuine attitude I'm feeling from a, a lot of people from the news, from you know even Don Lemon on CNN. Uh, <laughs> well, all this conversation of how we're fighting for our lives how we're resisting, how we look to be just preserving some of the progress that we've made in the last few years. It's made me think about the future a lot, but not in the way in what you're thinking. Like, how do we fight today to save tomorrow? More like along the lines of if something were to happen to me, like right now, like what would happen? I kind of never really thought about the future in this way as far as what would happen to the people around me? What would happen to uh, my partner, my wife? What would happen to my actual, you know, my, my immediate family? How would they feel? What decisions am I making today that if something were to happen to me tomorrow, I know they're left in good hands or they, or they, they were left with an understanding of, of who I am, what I wanted, And so I wanted to turn our attention to have this very open, holistic conversation about life planning, life care planning. What is that exactly? Um, And I say this because, I mean, let's face it. You know, when I was 19, I came out uh, before 2000. We weren't thinking about these things. There wasn't marriage equality. You know, we heard from our our older gay brothers um, and also our lesbian sisters about the fact that, you know, something like HIV AIDS had, that was a death sentence for them. And there was no planning outside of that. It just what it was. And so some families were torn apart. Well, now we're in 2017. We're fighting for our lives from a political point of view. Uh, But I, I sent the message to my family that it's possible that in this year, something could happen to me as I you know, join this resistance movement. So let's talk about life care planning. I've invited a good friend, also a colleague, as you know, Kaiser Permanente is a proud sponsor of the Michelle Miao Show, both on radio and television. And so here to talk to us about life care planning is Tim Reagan. He's a clinical health educator with Kaiser Permanente here in San Francisco. Tim, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy you're here. It's a, you know, it's like this calm feeling that I'm feeling after having a very aggravating conversation about, you know, rights being rolled back for Mm -hmm. our community or rights being taken away. I mean, Mm -hmm. something as simple as access to facilities. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just the the harm that's being done is unimaginable to some people, but it's actually really happening. So you heard me, you know, I'm I'm very serious about this. It's possible Mm -hmm. that something is going to happen to me. And so when I heard about life care planning from a Kaiser Permanente uh, representative, you know, said, well, 
have you thought about this and having a conversation about that, um, it really intrigued me. It really made me think a lot. And I want, if something were to happen, I want to make sure that people around me um, know that I cared and that I did something to preserve whatever I could as far as my legacy goes. So Mm -hmm. what exactly is life care planning to you? Well, first I want to say I'm really with you. In uh, this conversation, what we have right now is about some rights that you do have here in California that protect your voice and protect your integrity and your dignity in case something did happen and you ended up in the hospital and you couldn't speak for yourself. This is what you're talking about. So Kaiser Permanente's got your back here and every Kaiser member. In fact, we want the whole world to, to have this conversation, right? So what is life care planning? Life care planning is what Kaiser Permanente calls the process of selecting somebody to speak for you. If you're not able to speak, you end up in the hospital. And combined with that, the process of expressing your wishes and your values right now in case you end up in a situation where you're not going to recover, you may be on life-sustaining treatment, um, you know, what do you want to have happen in that point? At that particular point in some folks' lives, that actually does happen. And so it's, it's these two parts of this conversation. But life care planning for us uh, is a conversation. It's a compassionate conversation. Thank you for that, which is a hard conversation to have. And I mentioned this before we actually started recording, but life care planning conversations, not officially from you know the perspective of, of Kaiser Permanente, but in general, that people in our community, LGBTQI people mm-hmm. were having, um, if they could afford it prior to some laws changing, such as marriage equality, did that with an attorney, mm-hmm. right? Like what would happen to my property? And for the most part, or, you know, uh, property finances or, you know, decisions like life decisions is if you couldn't speak for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but prior to some of these laws actually uh, passing and giving us more equal rights and access, um, many of us were negatively and adversely affected. We lost our homes. We, our partners couldn't speak for us. Um, our chosen family, which often happened in the LGBTQI community because we got kicked out of our own homes for being LGBTQI, uh, could not speak for us. Mm. Um, so I wanted to ask this, this question you know, with all this historical context, and now we're here where we are. Why is life care planning so important? Mm. Well, it turns out that no matter what your family looks like, no matter who are your beloved ones, your, your children, your parents, your aunties and uncles, your lovers, your partners for many years, um, in the state of California, there is no, what you could say, uh, next of kin law. There is no legal uh, imperative for a physician who is caring for you in the hospital, you're not able to communicate, to listen to any particular person. Um, now, of course, the, the, the lead physician in any healthcare team is going to go speak to the loved ones that show up and, and hear the wishes of this person here as best as possible. But this is one reason why for everybody, uh, coming together and putting, putting together a life care plan document, an advanced directive with, with your wishes, and then the durable power of attorney for healthcare, just means choosing somebody to speak for you. That's why it's so important in California. But it's also important because it's an act of consideration. First of all, for yourself, you know, you're talking about these rights being taken away, people's voices being suppressed and squashed. It's heartbreaking right now, politically. 
And in this moment, this is an opportunity in, to, in this particular context, to make sure that you're heard. So it's active consideration for yourself, what you want to have happen at the end of your life when things are, are dire. But also it's an active consideration for the healthcare team. Imagine being, you know, a, a lead physician on a case and, you know, the nurses and staff are coming together. We want to know exactly what this human being wants. We value self-determination fundamentally. So, so we want, you know, the, the healthcare team to know what, what, what you would want. But also it's an act of consideration for the people who love you. When you express your wishes for that particular situation, it brings an ease and a, 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 a relief. Um, for, for example, my dad, now my dad's funny. He's, he hasn't filled out the form, but he's talked to him with me about this. There's a form, you can designate this stuff. And he said, Timothy, he's funny. He's an attorney and he, you know, he's in his seventies and he just, he, he just put it straight to me. And I, I felt better after this. He said, Timothy, if I was in that situation where I've got a you know, serious uh, brain injury, I'm on life support, breathing, feeding tubes, and, and you know, I'm not going to get better. If that happens, you would be leaning in the right direction if you were to let me go. Now, I get choked up when I say that. But hearing that from him, that was a consideration for me and my mom and my sister and everything because he's expressing that direction, his values. And he has a value of his life well lived. It's, it, he's, he's, he's satisfied or complete. So if he was in that case. So this whole thing, it's important for, this, for people to be heard, their values to be heard. And, um, you know, especially in a difficult situation, you know, when you're in the hospital. So let's, let's focus on this a little bit. Um, this is not to be mistaken for, you know, an official will or something Correct. like that. This really is specific to if you couldn't speak for yourself, some, 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 something happened, uh, uh, something tragically happened to you mm-hmm. and, and uh, you needed someone to make a decision for you. Mm-hmm. Um, this is all that it is? Yeah, the, the life care plan form helps you choose someone to speak for you. And it, they're actually not making a decision for you. This is really important. What we advocate for is that at the very least, everyone have this conversation with somebody, number one, who you trust, number two, who's willing to be your voice, and number three, who's open to following and expressing your wishes on your behalf, to be your voice, to stand in for you. Um, and speak your, uh, your wishes around, your values around healthcare. So this document helps you choose that person. Um, and actually, you know, in, in here at Kaiser Permanente, we take that document, we scan it in, we make sure it's part of the medical record, it's accessible anywhere in Kaiser Permanente. Um, so, so having that agent. And the second piece is giving you a chance to actually, even before you talk to an agent who's going to speak for you, to sit back and say, wait a second, what are my values? What does life mean to me? And after what point am I no longer me? I mean, there's a line for all of us. And it changes at different phases of life and states of health. But, you know, at what point is it time to let me go, you know? And so considering that, that's a conversation about death, but it's also a conversation about life. Like, hey, wait a second, who am I, you know? And uh, for example, the, my, my main value is I need to be able to give and receive love. Yeah. <laughs> that's me. If I can wink at you and talk to you and hang out, even if I can't move, but I'm conscious and I can recognize you, that's the bottom line for me. If that's not going to happen, well, I, I need to really, you know, let 
the healthcare system know and and my loved ones know that you know it's okay that I'm and I'm not going to get better it's okay to let me go mm-hmm. so does is this a new program um are people doing it i mean why how is is kaiser permanente embracing it and i ask this uh you know cuz we've heard of stories of those who talk about the right to die uh, and I'm and I'm wondering if this is kind of if it is new if if that was the inspiration behind it. No, this is not new. The, in California, the advanced directives form the durable power of attorney uh, form and concept has been in in the law for a long time. Kaiser Permanente for the last two or three years, um, frankly, got inspired and decided to get real. I like I, I really to get real about these conversations, but also to get real that folks need support to have these conversations. It's not just filling out a form and t- telling somebody to speak for you. Well, well, to talk to folks and have, to talk about our values and, hey, you know, approach somebody. I trust you. Would you be willing to be my voice? So life care planning is Kaiser's effort to make this easier for everybody to have this conversation. Now, the right to die and this new legislation around um, physician-assisted um, death, totally different conversation than life care planning. Um, because that's when you may have a, a terminal uh, diagnosis and you're not going to expect it to live more than six months. The law does say you can approach your physician directly you know, and discuss options um, around that for, um, for actually actively ending your life. This, that's when you're conscious and you can talk about it. The, this, this conversation around life care planning is particularly for who will speak for you if you're not able to speak for yourself. Got it. Got it. Thank you for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, just to clarify, when you say not being able to speak for yourself, you'd mentioned, you know, a conversation you had with your father and uh, you brought up, what if I was brain dead? I mean, what are mm-hmm. some uh, examples of not being able to speak for yourself? Yeah. Well, the, the simple direct example that we present for everybody to consider is a sudden accident or a stroke. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, um, the human body has a, a brain injury. Imagine if you actually have a brain injury that leaves you unable to recognize yourself or your loved ones. And the doctors and the team have told your agent or your family that you're not expected to recover these abilities at all. And so you're lying there. You're unable to communicate or you may be in a comatose state. Um, and life-sustaining treatments in this case that we present, well, when everybody consider life-sustaining treatments are needed, like a ventilator, a breathing machine, or a feeding tube. So your body's being sustained. But in this situation, we ask folks, you know, what would you want? What does this mean to you? And I lead these classes um, a couple times a week uh, at Kaiser uh, in San Francisco. And I ask that question. I look around the room. And it's pretty interesting because some folks will be have a completely still face. They won't be moving at all. Or maybe their eyes will be wide a little bit. They haven't thought about it. <laughs> but there's others that will be like shaking their head going, Mm-mm, they'll put their, their, their line across their throat. Mm-hmm. Or they'll be like, nope, later on, pull the, they'll pull the plug. And so when I present that, you know, many of us have a, a, a gut response to that. And that's a hint as to our values. Others say, Oh, give me every chance, you know. I am a child of God, and there's miracles everywhere, and my and my fate is determined by, you know, uh, <laughs> the divine. And so, uh, so we have that conversation, and that's that's the situation we ask folks to pay attention to and consider. What would you want in that in that case? 
And so, you know, this falls in line with uh, with everything. If you're planning anything in life, I mean, you don't want to be too late. So <laughs> is there ever an actual good time to, to get this done? And you mentioned a form. It sounds really easy and it sounds legal. Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us about when people should be doing this, updating it. Does does it get updated once you make a decision? Is, mm-hmm. is that set in stone? Yeah. Yeah. I personally recommend... On behalf of Kaiser Permanente, if you're 18 and above, get this done. Absolutely. And, uh, and there is a form, and it is legal. When you fill it out, you can actually go to our website, and anybody can download Kaiser Permanente's form. It's legal. It can be used anywhere. Um, and you go to kp.org slash lifecareplan is the website. Download it, and you express your wishes, and you put the person down who you want to speak for you. And then you just have two people sign it, two people you know. One can't be a family member. Two people sign it and say, yep, you know, Michelle Miao signed this. Uh, it's legal now. And then you sign it yourself. And then make sure you get a copy to your uh, health care plan, whoever takes care of you. And, uh, and give a copy to your agent. Keep a copy for yourself and important, you know, important documents. And, um, yeah, we now's the time. Yeah. I got to ask this just because, um, you know, not everybody's a Kaiser Permanente patient, but or or uh, that's not uh, they're not with with mm-hmm. Kaiser Permanente. But uh, the form, once you sign it, you said it's legal. It's honored at every hospital. Yeah. If you present that to any hospital in the state of California, these forms are, are designed by state. So if you're in a different state, find out about the, the actual way to designate your agent and uh, in that state. Um, but this form stays uh, legal and in effect until two things in California, until you make a new form and put a new date on it and sign it again, change your wishes. And we recommend you do that every decade. Or if your health changes or your values change around life. Um, but it's, uh, it stays in effect. And also it is possible if you're conscious, even though you have one on file and you sh- you're in the hospital, but you're aware and you can, your, your wishes will always be honored if you can speak, um, you can change your wishes. You can express them directly to the healthcare team and they'll document that too. So it's not like it, it stays locked in. It's just, we want something on record, you know, like this value of consideration for being heard and honored and having your, your wishes uh, valued, you know, and followed. Tim, I want to thank you so much for having an open, compassionate conversation with me here on the program about life and death, Mm -hmm. uh, which is not always an easy conversation to have, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So thank you for doing that for us. And I just wanted to add one last thing, which is these conversations are enlightening and very meaningful, even when partners and, and sweethearts have been together for a long time, may not know their values about the situation. And you can really learn a lot about each other and um, get closer together by talking about this stuff. It's a talk about death and life and death and life. It's all tied together. Tim, thank you so much. (laughs) The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, 
from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face with today's thought leaders. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining me here on this program. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. The show is your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. It's March 23rd and the third week of March, and next week will be the last week of March, and we are moving slowly through 2017, or it feels like it's just been a million days or years. Good news today, the House stalled the, the health care vote um, that's good news in some ways in showing that this new health care bill could possibly go through some challenges before it actually gets approved and or Obamacare gets gutted. So cross your fingers, keep fighting, keep fighting the good fight. Speaking of fighting, we're going to spend the second half of the show listening to interviews that I've done with some incredible activists from When We Rise, the ABC7 miniseries, or I'm sorry, I say ABC7 because that's the San Francisco local station, but the ABC uh, miniseries that was produced and directed by Dustin Lance Black uh, that just aired, actually, just aired a couple weeks ago, and it sounds like a lot of people were very into it. Well, um, I'm very honored and very happy to say that a lot of the activists whose stories were featured on the miniseries are true friends of mine. So let's spend the second half of the program listening to those who have led such fights. And don't forget, the show is on here Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. And then Sunday, it's everything with B.B. Sweetbriar at noon during the Michelle Meow program. For everything else, you could head to michellemeow.com. Ken, thank you so much for joining me. This is such an incredible honor. Well, thank you so much for inviting me down here today to talk about uh, the ABC TV miniseries, mm-hmm. When We Rise, mm-hmm. that is due to drop in February 2017. We're getting close, Michelle. And uh, we're all very, very excited about this opportunity. Right, right. It's such a gift to the LGBTQ community. Um, and I think perfect in terms of timing, uh, as far as how much people are consuming our, uh, you know, our history. Uh, and I say our as an LGBTQ. So 
your story is told through When We Rise, and you're the Ken Jones, who is Harvey Milk's <laughs> friend, and you worked with him in City Hall. You're an activist yourself, um, the first African-American board president of the San Francisco Pride Organization, or I should say at that time it was the um, uh, San Francisco LGBT uh, Pride Celebration Committee. So, uh, Michael K. Williams plays you. How do you feel about that? I mean, Michael K. Williams, he is so gritty and he's raw and he's energetic. And I, I just watched him last night at uh, HBO's the new hit miniseries, The Night Of. Yes. So how do you feel about yes. Michael K. Williams playing he you? He is such an exciting human being with just a huge heart. And Michelle, he really wanted to get this story correct. He put his body through some physical changes you wouldn't believe. He lost 35 pounds uh, portraying me when I was not very uh, healthy. Mm. And uh, he just brings so much passion. He's actually just the perfect person for this role. And uh, I think that what you will see in When We Rise in my story is kind of three themes. And the first, it's a, a short little story. When I was eight years old, I was on the field in grammar school playing track and field. I had run the 100-yard dash, and I had won. And one of the losers came over in front of the entire group and said, you know what, Ken? You run just like a girl. And he put up his hands, and he went running like this. This is 1958, Michelle. I was devastated, you know, mm -hmm. devastated mm -hmm. when the world stops, when you see nothing, when you can hear your heart and feel your pulse. And I was never the same child. Mm. I got into the pattern of I wanted to be the best boy in the world so that God would change me. God was an influence in my growing up, and I kept praying change me. I didn't know anything about preference or orientation, but I knew I was different. Mm -hmm. And I kept praying that God would change me. And Michelle, God didn't change me. It took me about 50 years to get it so clearly that God created me just like I am. And what God needed for me was for me to rise up, own that difference, step out in that difference to make the world a better place. And not only for those who are with us now, but for all those who are going to walk these paths in the future. I want kids all over America to know that, you know, step out in it, own it, you're different. Mm -hmm. And we hope that the parents get the skills that they need to be able to, to foster these precious lives. So that's a value of me, and I hope it's the contribution I can make in terms of kids addressing the issue of bullying. Well, absolutely. It's uh, the fruits of your labor are showing, you know, today and now. And, and to have a project like When We Rise get funded and and get shown on ABC. I, mean, I know. Who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? Did when you think it would happen? Never. When we were little ragtag leftists, that even the gay community would rather us be invisible. And that's a part of the story, too. The person playing me as young Ken is Jonathan Majors. Mm -hmm. And you're going to hear this name a great, great deal. He's another phenomenal actor. 
And when he landed the role, he wrote me an email and he said, Ken, I just Googled you and nothing came up. And I said, well, welcome to my world. I've been invisible for a very long time. And then I said, and I always thought that Meryl Streep would be playing me in the miniseries, but it is what it is. <laughs> I would want Meryl Streep playing me too. <laughs> I love her. Um, so I'm sure the kid was a little bit shocked, but we met a couple of days later up in Vancouver and uh, he's just a phenomenal actor. You're gonna be hearing a great deal about him. So we do address the issue of racism in the gay community and the many hundreds of meetings I attended and chaired where I was the only person of color in attendance. I was going to ask you, you know, what was it like being an out gay black activist for LGBT rights in the late 70s? Um, what was that like here in San Francisco even? I wasn't sure what I was doing, but I knew I had this yearning in my heart to respond. I knew that all the images I was seeing of gay people were white men. I even remember my early dealings with uh, the Board of Supervisors in the uh, early 80s when they weren't some of the African-American supervisors couldn't believe that I was running around proud. He's proud that he's gay? Do you believe this character? What is this? And then I had the unfortunate experience along the way of finding myself in conflict with the African-American community about drug use. Specifically, I, it landed on my desk that we needed a city-sanctioned needle exchange program. We knew that needle exchange from other countries we had compelling interest that sharing needles reduce infection of AIDS. We know that. Mm -hmm. And of course, the black community kind of felt like I was uh, condoning drug use in the community, not caring about their youth. And it became seriously competing interests. Everything that you're saying is correct. But we're also talking about lives. And we think we know what we can do about saving Mm -hmm. And before we get too off track, but what I brought to that discussion at the time, I was president of the board of YES. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, Youth Environment Studies. Um, it gave way to what was called the Mid-City Consortium to Combat AIDS. I was the president of the board, and we were looking at homeless youth and the hate who had come here as part of the love movement um, and found themselves with no jobs, no family, no home, no structure, no health care, no nothing. And uh, the YES project became a federal demonstration project. We actually got federal money, if you can believe this, to demonstrate that community health outreach workers, people that you pay, to go out on the street, to become involved in the lives of these street people. And this was a radically different approach from waiting in your office as a social worker for these clients to come to you. Mm -hmm. It was a totally different experience to become wedded in their lives and to bring up things like, well, maybe we go see a doctor tomorrow. 
or maybe have you thought of enrolling in this? It was a way of bringing about behavioral change. And I had kind of seen this intravenous drug use virus that was traveling through Miami, New York, LA. So when it came here, I was kind of primed already mm -hmm. to do something. I knew the magnitude of this thing. And uh, again, it was the competing interests. In the early days, we struggled hard, Michelle, with the basic question of, do we scare people to change their behavior, scare the wits out of them? Mm -hmm. Or do we give them enough accurate information to make decisions? The two camps felt very passionate about both of those. And I think you're going to see that discussion as part of when we rise. And mm -hmm. again, it was about us rising in the midst of what was just absolutely horrible. Right. Everyone around us was sick, dying. I mean, you felt like you needed to do something. No one had the option of sitting this out. Mm -hmm. It was uh, totally devastating for our community. And through that all, Michelle, all the headlines were talking about how white the epidemic was. In terms of how the San media and saw how the, media, the epidemic? How the media saw the epidemic, mm -hmm. which was very interesting to me because I was one of the first volunteers at the Capacity Sarcoma Research and Education mm -hmm. Foundation. I was the first paid volunteer director at the AIDS Foundation. I was the one who thought, well, you know what? Rather than it be me against the world, let's form the Third World AIDS Advisory Task Force, and we'll create a body of other stakeholders. So it's not just me, mm -hmm. but I bring the voice of hundreds. Mm -hmm. And uh, we never really changed the perception of the media about who owned this epidemic. Uh, but we've been there from the very beginning. Which has been invisible to a lot <laughs> of people until, yeah, I guess, now that uh, there is a, you know, global interest in LGBTQ rights and our history. I wanted to ask you a question, and I thought that it was interesting, and this is part of, you know, the invisibility part, right? Um, when I was reading up about When We Rise and the activists uh, who were involved in the miniseries, um, I was a little surprised that one of Harvey Milk's friends or so someone who worked with Harvey Milk was an African-American gay man. Uh, in my mind, especially in the movie Milk with Sean Penn, most of the characters were white. So what was it like working with Harvey Milk being, you know, I guess, invisible and limited at that time? I mean, there weren't a lot of activists that we know of that we're now reading about who were there this entire time. Michelle, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As an activist, mm -hmm. it is my job to hold legislators like Harvey Milk mm -hmm. accountable. And I took great pride in grabbing his chitakumbums. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a part of why I was invisible as well. I was so far to the left that it was hard for the gay media to embrace it. The African-American community definitely didn't embrace it. 
and mainstream media just wouldn't embrace it. What we did have in our favor at the time was a publication, have you heard of Coming Up? Nope. There was a women's newspaper by a uh, owner, Kim Cassaro. Mm -hmm. You can look this up later. Do you know Kim? Yes, through uh, the Bay Times. Through the Bay, that's right, Coming Up later became the Bay Times. Yeah. And she was covering the issues related to women and people of color. And that was also an important coalition that was formed. When we started doing our social change work, both women and people of color found ourselves needing to fight to participate. And somewhere along the line of the fight, we thought, well, you know, we're in this to win it, you're in it to win it. And I think that one of the strongest coalitions that we formed was that of women and people of color in this epidemic. And we were able to, to kind of shape the responses of uh, this city to this crippling epidemic. Mm -hmm. And that's when I found and fell in love with Pat Norman, who was the first uh, lesbian gay health services coordinator for the city and county of San Francisco. This was a real big to do. And she was an African American woman. And uh, uh, we were struggling hard at the time. Pat, like Michael K. Williams, is a person of integrity. And when they've made up their mind and their hearts, watch out. <laughs> we will be watching in February when When We Rise, ABC's new miniseries, comes out. And uh, again, what an honor to have you here. I have one last question for yes, you before I let you go. Uh, you have been involved and had been an activist. And we were joking right before we started this interview that it's been a span of 40 years even. We're now here in 2016. And there is a, a big network that has taken an interest in telling your story. I think one, one, one question I'd like to ask is, do you think we've come a long way? And then, you know, a follow-up to that would be, how do you feel about the progress that we've made? And is it enough? I... Um... I had this conversation not too long ago with someone around race. And they asked, well, in 50 years, surely there's been some progress made, right? And I thought about it and I said, yes. In 50 years, there has been some tremendous progress made. And in 50 years, there have been some issues where there has been no movement. Mm -hmm. um, when I still think of African-Americans and North American society, kids do not have access. Every child born today does not have the same degree of access. And it's a shame and a pity that your zip code can kind of determine your future. Mm -hmm. uh, we, can, we can be a better American, we know it. Mm -hmm. And we've got to get back to somehow and again, it's that theme about when we rise that, um, you know, you can't sit this one out. Uh, 
50 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the dream. Well, I'm shaking you right now. The dream has turned into a nightmare. Wake up, mm. rise. That's what, when we rise, is what is able to tear down those massive walls of homophobia. When we rise, we're able to tear down those walls of racism, to tear down the walls of hatred when we rise. But we need you to rise. Mm -hmm. We need you to rise. And this nightmare that we're in, it belongs to all of us. None of us has the opportunity to sit it out. It's time to rise. Our future depends on it. And not only for those who are with us now, Michelle, but for all those who are going to walk these paths in the future, we got to rise. Ken, you are such an inspiration to me. And again, what an incredible honor to, mm -hmm. to listen to you speak so passionately. I look forward to watching When We Rise and seeing your story be told. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's spotlight on success and achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion. Uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me a real honor to, to be participating in this way. And I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come. So I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a, a pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement, presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, Leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boys came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, 
from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders.